All right, here we are. This uh, this video is um, or audio if you're listening on podcast. This is not um, just an analysis of a book. This is an analysis of a movement using their printed materials in order to understand what's going on with the movement. Um, Bethel Church is is really more than just a church in Redding, California. It's a giant church movement that's impacting places all over the all over the place. When I posted that I was going to do this video, there was a comment from someone saying, "Thank you for making this content." Bethel is having a huge impact in our in our area in Norway. I mean, it's just really very, very broad, the impact they have. But sadly, and I do mean sadly, I don't rejoice in this. I don't take any joy in it. Um, I do believe and I'm convinced, and I'm going to give you the evidence as to why, that the the movement is building a bridge for Christians to head towards the new age, new age beliefs and practices, calling it Christian, um, but also self-deception more broadly encouraging Christians to move towards self-deception in the name of Christ, in the name of prophecy. And I'm I'm sorry to make this video. This is new information. I did a video on Bethel a long time ago <clears throat> where I talked about Bill Johnson and I evaluated his teachings. Um, and this is more information I didn't have back then and I feel compelled to add to it. I would have been more harsh um, uh, on on Bill Johnson and on the Chris, uh, his, his, um, his prophet, and and the the different teachings that are going on in this in this area, uh, not hopefully overly harsh, but I would have been more harsh had I known what I know now. And I actually read this book a while back, but I I just haven't found the time to make a review. So here's a review, and I've discovered a lot of content that I think is very important to share. So, um, this book seeks to build a bridge between Christians and the New Age woo, and it is called the Physics of Heaven. Um, it is endorsed by leaders. And we'll, we'll go through some of the endorsement and messages and stuff. We're going to go through the book thoroughly today, as well as a, another book written by the same author. Um, it's endorsed by um, uh, Bethel leadership, like Chris Vallotton, or the um, <clears throat> the leader of Jesus Culture, uh, whose name escapes me. I have it in my notes. I'll read it to you in a moment. Um, Bill Johnson contributes chapters to this book. Benny Johnson, his wife, who sadly, tragically recently passed away from cancer, she contributes chapters to this book, and they've definitely endorsed it. Judy Franklin worked at Bethel at the time she wrote this, and she is one of the go-to people for helping, according to Bethel and their style, their method, helping train others how to take trips to heaven and how to experience visions, ultimately, of their own making, uh, as well as, in this book, to move towards the new age it's not good. It is. It's not good. So Judy Franklin is one of the authors. Um, Ellen Davis is another one of the authors, and we'll talk about all that stuff today. Um, how bad is it? Let me just say this. I say very soberly and seriously. Um, I would confront the if the authors were in in a church that I was, you know, in a in a position of leadership in. I would confront them with it, the issues in this book. And then I would not let them fellowship at the church unless they repented. I would I would disfellowship them over these issues. Absolutely would. Instead, what Bill Johnson has done is he has lifted these authors up and this book up, and he's presented it to others as a model of what to do, of how to do things. It's really it's not good. So let's talk about the book. Let's go through it. Um, <clears throat> it starts off with ultimately with bait. The beginning of the book, The Physics of Heaven, which mixes quantum mysticism and woo with Christianity, trying to bridge them together, and it ultimately loses both re real science and real Christianity on, on along the way. At least it's not compatible with them. 
Um, but what they do is they start with the idea of revival and the, the beginning of the book is sort of laying out the bait of, oh, God has these great things for you. He has amazing supernatural powers that are available to you and me. And I'm going to give you keys to find those so that you can walk in these super amazing powers that you can have as a Christian. And, um, the verse they'll use for this to launch off with is Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. Let's look at those, and then we'll see what she says about them. <clears throat> for Because every, every, just about every verse that's used in this book is wrong, is used incorrectly. So we'll look at several of them as we go through. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us, excuse me. <clears throat> for the creation waits with eager longing for the sons, for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is what... Judy Franklin and, and the physics of heaven ultimately says about this. I felt like there was more to those verses. So I began earnestly seeking the Lord as to what they meant. He shared that from the day of Pentecost until now, no child of God has ever fully realized the power that has been put within us. God has given us power to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. And we've done that to a point, but although we are extremely happy and grateful for the power we've operated in, it in no way has reached the measure of what he intends for us. <clears throat> so ultimately, what they're going to suggest is no child of God. It's on the quote right here on your screen. No Christian, not Peter, nobody has actually operated in the full power available to all Christians. And she wants to bring. So anytime there's an author who's saying, I want to bring you something the church has never, ever had in the history of the entire church from Pentecost till now. You know that's a red flag, but it's very exciting to certain people. To to the authors, um, Romans chapter 8, let me put that verse back up on your screen. This is about Christians needing spiritual awakening and they have, having empowerment. The revelation of the sons of God is us exhibiting supernatural powers in our lives. Whereas in Romans 8, what's actually being discussed is the new creation. The revealing of the sons of God here is when, when Jesus returns and he remakes the world and he and he gives us new bodies all that it's a future reality not a present reality that that's the important thing <coughs> pardon me and so um to paul let's look at colossians 3 to see that this verse is being uh used out of context so colossians 3 4 there's a similar idea when christ who is your life appears when jesus appears then you also will appear with him in glory that's the revealing of the sons of god it comes at the second coming of Christ. Judy's presenting it like a second Pentecost or a great re a spiritual revival right now, not in the future. This this actually feeds into Bill Johnson's theology too, because he thinks you can, you can by faith, grab things that are meant for the future that God doesn't even mean for now, and you can pull it into today, and you can ex experience this. This is what we call, uh, what theologians sometimes call an over-realized eschatology. Um, but basically you got wrong timing. <laughs> You're taking the promises of God and applying them where they don't apply. <clears throat> so let's let's continue because we have a lot of stuff to cover today. We're going to look at quantum physics, the stuff they say about it. We actually have a review of this book by a, a Christian quantum physicist, or he's rather, he's an astrophysicist specifically, but he's going to show that this is these aren't scientific claims. The stuff they say about zero point field and sound and energy and positive negative energy and quantum fluctuations, these things aren't true. They're, they're false science and false theology leading to a false spiritual practice with the endorsement and encouragement of Bethel um, and Bill Johnson. So the whole journey here begins with a misuse of scripture. Judy's journey was like, hey, I think these verses are talking about present realities, not future realities. More power than Peter ever had, you know, more power than Paul ever had. And 
And, and I'm going to look for that. So that's how her journey began. And she wants you to go on this journey with her. Here's the next quote. This is what the book will offer you. She says, doing the works of Jesus and even greater works should be an everyday occurrence for us. When a child gets cancer, we should be able to tell that cancer to leave now because that child is not meant to die early. He's meant to have a long life. Now, here's me talking now. Pause for a second. Look at the way she's going to use scripture to determine how long every human is supposed to live. This is a twisting of scripture. It's not the meaning of the word, but it's over and over again through the book, the misuse of scripture. <clears throat> again, this book's endorsed and supported by, by um, Bethel and written by someone who was working for Bill Johnson at the time she wrote this. In the Garden of Eden and up until the time of the flood, she says, people lived long lives. Psalm 90 verse 10 says that we should live for 70 to 80 years. And in Genesis 6-3, God says man's days should be 120 years. Notice she says, should be, she adds this, should be 120 years, like you should live this long. She says, this means everybody should be living until they are at least 70 because God has allotted each of us that amount of time on this earth. Do I have to explain what's weird with this? I'll, I read on. Uh, but sometimes we don't even have to pray. Peter merely walked past people and every disease or infirmity his shadow passed over was healed. I imagine that he wasn't even aware people were being healed by his shadow until they told him. Peter carried the spirit of God within him. He carried the original power of let there be light, energy, power, light within him. And that's what we should be doing. Um, <clears throat> so Psalm 90 uh, does talk about by, by reason of strength, our years might be up to 80 or something, but it doesn't tell you anything about this is how long every human is, is allotted. Everybody's supposed to live this long. And so you can claim it in the name of God and, and heal anything up until someone's 70 or 80 years old. This is a distortion of scripture, but it's an obsession with miracles uh, that leads to it. So Peter in scripture, to respond to this, Peter was an anomaly. Um, he, the, the whole thing with his shadow was not standard. Even in Peter's life, it was not normal. It was a, it was a rare thing. Even in the book of Acts, it was a rare thing. Um, but we'll move forward because there's so much we have to look at today. <clears throat> so they will say that people in the future, and the quote that's on your screen, I'm sorry, some of the quotes will be very small print. Um, you'll be easier to see it on a laptop or iPad or TV or computer, but uh, cell phones might struggle. <clears throat> but here's the next quote. You should be able to point at a tsunami and make it stop. She says, after I had researched sound for nearly 10 years, which is something you may come to laugh at as we keep reading this book, the Lord began showing me visions of what was to come. Keep this in mind, God's speaking to her and she's revealing to you visions from God. She says, this really excited me and I began sharing what God was showing me wherever I went. The visions are like movies and they take place after God has released his new sound. Remember that phrase, his new sound. <clears throat> and people are transformed by it. In one of the movies, I saw Christians who've been affected by the coming God sound standing on the shore of an island like Japan. A tsunami was coming in, and as it approached the shore, all they did was point to the tsunami and command it to stop, and suddenly, everything became still. In other visions, I saw Christians who had been transformed by God's sound, stopping floods and natural disasters. I saw hurricanes headed toward our coast and Christians speaking to the winds and telling them to stop. The winds obeyed and everything became calm. I saw tornadoes moving toward a town and people who were affected by this new sound pointed at the tornadoes and told them to stop at, and the whirlwinds collapsed into nothing. I saw people who were changed by the sound. God is going to release watching a wildfire so out of control nothing could put it out. These Christians pointed to the fire and told it to stop and it was immediately extinguished. Now it's not that every aspect of this is unbiblical. <clears throat> It is entirely accurate that Jesus simply declared for a storm to stop. 
But what she's doing is she's grabbing this, expanding it to be normative and applying it to every Christian and attaching it to a prophecy about a special sound. A special sound. So that's the elements that are not coming from Scripture. Expand this to all Christians and turn it into a prophecy about what's about to happen, something that's never been happened or expected in Scripture, and then attach it to a prophecy about a special sound. In the book, she'll talk about this sound as like a quantum mysticism thing that is related to science and her research into sound, and we'll get into the woo and the false science there. They even have a guy who pretends in this book to be a quantum physicist, and he's not. Like, they literally say he's a quantum physicist, and it's just a, it's a lie in this book endorsed by Bethel. Um, let me let me read it to you. I'm not trying to be sensationalistic. I want us to understand the gravity of the situation. I'm not exaggerating by, by any measure here. So <clears throat> she also says curing child cancer should be normal. Let's look at that. This is the bait. This is what gets you in, gets you to say, wow, I better read this book. I want to experience these things. When a child gets cancer, we should be able to tell that cancer to leave. I feel like I already read this part. Yes, I did. But what I didn't do was look at Psalm 90 verse 10. So let's just look at that Psalm 90, 10 <clears throat> together. Um, and uh, it says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and and uh, trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. This is just talking about a natural lifespan. It's not talking about how, you, how old you should live. Everyone deserves 70 years. It doesn't say that. You're adding to the text of Scripture and you're turning into a promise and then you're making declarations and telling people they can prophesy about cancer and stuff like this. It's it's no, no bueno. It's not good. But <clears throat> have they got you on the hook? Now, for some of you, you might be like, no, Mike, no, not with, especially with your commentary on top of what she's saying. But if you're part of Bethel or, or of, of those churches that are influencing them, spiritual power is the key it's the number one thing you're supposed to desire all the time is spiritual power, spiritual power, miracles, prophecy, dreams, visions, financial prosperity. These are all the things you should be, you should be focusing and be unsettled and discontent unless you're achieving these things. So this is like bread and butter to people who have been taught under Saville Johnson, <clears throat> who most of his messages are about stirring people up, it seems to be in a place where they're craving this stuff um, with an unnatural craving. So if they got you on the hook, well, to some people they would. Um, now let's talk about how they handle the issue of error. Um, will this lead you into error? <clears throat> the reason why they have to do this is because they're about to ask you to go into the new age and learn spiritual practices from new agers and use them as a Christian. This is a freaky thing that most Christians would intuitively go, uh, no. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Most Christians would feel that way. So they need to deal with the idea that that people are unsettled and uncomfortable. So there's debate, superpowers, super supernatural miracles. Then there's the um the obstacle. You guys might feel like what we're about to ask you to do is weird. So here we go. Let's talk about that. She says, because almost every time God moves on, he takes us into unfamiliar territory that seems dangerous and sometimes seems to contradict what he's done in the past. To me, this is devious, um, preparing people so that they can feel comfortable if what they're about to hear from Judy Franklin with the endorsements of Bill Johnson, Benny Johnson, Chris Valentin, uh, Banning Liebscher, he's the Jesus culture pastor, with their support, um, you know, we want you to feel comfortable if it feels like this contradicts what God has done, you know, throughout church history and, you know, in, in, in scriptures from what we've experienced. Then, then she goes on, there are many <clears throat> stumbling blocks to be expected as we extract precious truths from worthless. 
But I refuse to let one of those stumbling blocks be my fear that I will somehow be tainted or captured by the devil as I try to recover and express those truths. We'll talk more about this later, but this is the first time in the book it's really coming up. Page 17. She's basically saying, um, I refuse to worry that as I go into new age beliefs and practices that I will somehow be deceived. I won't even consider it. And she wants you to feel the same way. This is, it's hard to put into words how bad this is and unbiblical, but we'll talk more about it as we go. So I'll save, I'll save that. So let me, let me talk now about, um, the, the gaslighting that happens in the book. This is part of the, I think it was probably, uh, the publisher that wanted this in here. This is under the acknowledgments section, but it says, therefore the reader should be aware. And this is the gaslighting. Uh, that this information in the book is not intended as spiritual advice, doctrinal position, or comprehensive scientific fact, but rather is intended to be a sharing of knowledge and information from the research and experience of the authors and contributors. To me, this is like a standard disclaimer. We don't want to be accountable for the things that you're reading. But it's very clear that through, other than this acknowledgement, throughout the book, they speak on behalf of God and they speak prophetically over and over again. So this this elevates the book to very, very important. The church needs to hear it or to something that's actually evil because either it's truly from God or it's not from God. And if not, you have to treat it as um, a counterfeit message from God, not just as something neutral. So we'll look at this. The authors tell us prophetically that we are being prepared for a second Pentecost. And this new Pentecost, when God releases sound, it's going to be 10 times more power than the original Pentecost. They say, quote, the Lord is ready to use sound, light, and energy in ways we never dreamed, but we first need to have some foundational understandings. So God is going to do this. This is in the name of God. Here's where they just flat out say on page 38, God is saying there are mysteries to be understood, inheritances that are untended, uncared for, unoccupied, but they're there for the taking. And all three of those statements are related to going into quantum mysticism, which is a new age woo belief stuff, <clears throat> and pulling out their beliefs and using those their beliefs in Christianity and calling them Christian. That's what this is related to. The sound, the light, and, and the and the energy. This is these aren't vague terms. These are terms for quantum mysticism about their belief system. The next quote I have for you, I got a lot of quotes for you guys today. A word from God. (laughs) Compare this to what they said. We're not saying that any of this is spiritual advice. And then they, shortly thereafter, they go, a word from God. (laughs) They go, here's a prophetic word from the Lord. The Lord gave me about the coming importance of sound. Just as the people were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, when suddenly there came a voice uh, of, excuse me, came from heaven a noise. And the noise was like a violent rushing wind. The noise wasn't a violent. Anyway, it's not that she wants to highlight the noise, but that's not what scripture says was a, a violent rushing wind. They heard the sound of a violent, not a noise that was a violent. You get it. There's a slight difference. There will come again a noise that I will release from heaven. This noise, this sound, according to them, this is God speaking, will be released. And just as those people in that upper room were changed, People who hear this sound that I will release will be changed. While I'm not calling any of my people to sit in an upper room and wait, I am calling them to a place where their spirits are in an upper room position to receive what I'm about to release. This sound that I will release will cause people to think differently. Very radical, very big, and also very vague. Let's look at three more quotes from the book. This book is just a precursor to the revelation that God is going to give us when he releases a new transforming sound. 
On page two, the next thing the Lord told me was that soon he would release a sound from heaven that will literally change the structure of how we think. And then this summarizes it well on page 20. We're on a voyage of discovery into realms that may contain mysteries of God, but then again, they may not. This is why I call it gaslighting. And this is, this is, um, this is part of, I think, part of what comes as a byproduct of the way Bethel does supernatural things. They're, they stir up false, and I'll demonstrate this as we go, fake prophecy, fake visions, fake trips to heaven. And they want to say, God says this, but they know there's going to be a lot of error mixed in there. So they have to say, yeah, but then again, maybe not. But I'm going to say it in the name of the Lord and then say, maybe not. Like, imagine if you read that in Peter, right? <laughs> what, if, what if you read it in Paul? He goes like, I'm writing you Romans to give you my knowledge in the gospel that God has revealed to me for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then again, maybe not. <laughs> like, like, that's just not how it works. Um, this is This is gaslighting us. So it's absolutely presented as prophecy and God-given spiritual insights obtained over a decade of prayer, research, and listening to God. So we got science, we got spiritual um, uh, revelation from God, and we have like the, the 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 deep searching of the author. Then they say maybe at the end of it all. So that it's just weird. All right, let's talk about the New Age connection because chapter two gets into the New Age connection where they're going to abuse Jeremiah. We'll talk about this because the abuse of scripture I think is important to highlight. Here's specific verses that are misused. Um, and uh, I find that when Christians notice that and they go, wow, you, you, you're misusing the Bible in the name of the Lord. Like this is clearly evidence that you're not being hearing from God. At any rate, this chapter two is called extracting the precious from the worthless. And they take that phrase from Jeremiah and they use it like you're supposed to go into the new age and the new age has precious and worthless things. And you're supposed to pull out the precious things and you could figure it out. You'll be able to know what to pull out and bring into Christianity. Then the worthless is what you leave there. Jeremiah doesn't mean that at all. We'll talk about that. So here in uh, page 11, they say in Jeremiah 15, 19, God says to Jeremiah, if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. We may have to delve into areas we previously considered off limits to extract the precious from the worthless and recover lost truths that belong to the people of God. Their scriptural support for this is Jeremiah 15, 19, which I'll put up on your screen, even though they, they, they quoted it, but let's look at, I don't know what translation they're using there, but let's look at this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. Now he's talking to Jeremiah and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. God doesn't want Jeremiah um, <clears throat> taking on the bad attitudes and beliefs of the people. He wants them to be his spokesman. When he says extract the precious from the worthless, the ESV gives utter what is precious and not what is worthless. And that's probably a better translation. But the different commentaries I looked up, they generally agreed. The handbook on Jeremiah looks at it this way and says, Jeremiah's meaning is presumably the words that came from the Lord himself are precious. Whereas what Jeremiah has just been saying earlier in chapter 15 is worthless. The TEV translates if instead of talking nonsense, you proclaim a worthwhile message, and the GECL has, if you speak no, no more such nonsense, but weigh your words. In other words, Jeremiah, you just complained to me, just like the people were complaining. If you stop that, and you only speak truth, and you don't take on their bad attitudes, and you only give what I tell you to give, then you can be my mouth. You can be my spokesman. 
But the meaning in the physics of heaven isn't like this. It's not about guarding our hearts to not complain and not take on the wrong beliefs of those around us as we're preaching to them, because that happens. When you go out and you outreach to people, you minister to people, you preach to them, you start to be tempted to take on their false beliefs as part of a way of reaching them, or maybe because we just, we're, we're just like sponges, right? Like we absorb the beliefs of those we're around sometimes. And Jeremiah, don't do that. You need to be hard and, and, and steadfast in believing and in, in saying the things that I tell you and nothing else. That's the meaning in Jeremiah. Whereas in the physics of heaven, it means this, go into the new age, find good stuff to claim as Christian. Here's another quote from the book. She says, I decided to examine new age thought and practice for anything precious that might be extracted from the worthless. Page 15. Abusing Jeremiah to do something that's spiritually reckless and dangerous that I will show you with scripture we're specifically told not to do. So verse 12, here we are. Verse 12. I'm always teaching the Bible, so I say verse when I just see a number on my notes. Uh, this is picture number 12 or quote number 12. This is in chapter uh, 1 or page 14. I think it's still chapter one here. I moved to Sedona, she says. This is where Judy talks about how she learned about the new age. She goes, I moved to Sedona, fully prepared to discount everything I saw and heard as coming from a source other than God I knew, the God I knew and loved. But as a scientist, I was intrigued by what I found there. Uh, Spoiler, she's not a physicist. She's not a quantum physicist. Her science stuff has nothing to do with those things. Um, I saw healings and mystical experiences and revelations to rival anything I had seen or experienced in the church. I encountered an understanding of the natural world. Right, she, listen to this. She encountered an understanding of the natural world, meaning she learned from New Agers how to look at the universe or the world around us and how it interacted with the spiritual that I had sensed but had never been taught by any of my science. Uh, and <laughs> spoiler, because it's not scientific and nor was it, nor is it biblical. She goes on. It wasn't that I wanted to become a new ager. I just wanted to find out if maybe they had uncovered some truths the church hadn't. This strange thing was much of what I saw and heard embodied biblical principles and could be backed up by scripture. Except her use of scripture is totally wrong, as, as I've already demonstrated, I will continue to show. So here we are. This is Sedona. I've been to Sedona. It's Arizona. It's not too far from California. It's like a, you know, seven or eight hour drive for me if you go straight through. <clears throat> and it is a wacky woo place. Sedona is known for being like the location for new agey weirdos. I'm just saying that's like the reputation it has and rightly so. So she goes to Sedona and there she learns the things that she wants you to learn in this book. So here's a, a, a woman who goes into the new age, learns these abuses the scripture to justify this practice. And now she's teaching it to you in this book, this book that's endorsed by, sold at Bethel's bookstore. Um, and this woman who is used as a, you'll see this later, she's the guest who comes in on behalf of Bethel to train other people on how to have these new age experiences. We'll all get there later. I have evidence for all this. I'll share it with you. Now we are beginning to hear, she says, page 15. Now we're beginning to hear more and more revelation that is in line with what new agers have been saying all along, and we are hearing more and more teaching about Christians taking back truths from the new age that really belong as citizens of the kingdom of God. I think she, at this time, she goes to Bethel. Where are they hearing most of their prophecy at Bethel? Bethel is more and more adopting this posture of let's go and claim it. This is why Bethel was okay with, at least for a season, uh, it, it kind of went silent on it, okay with using tarot cards and you just call them Christian cards, okay with Christians going and doing psychic readings in the name of Christ. Yes, I'm, I'm doing psychic reading, but it's but I'm doing it as a Christian, so it's okay. 
And um, this is because of this sort of belief. This is not just one book. This is permeating the the the, the whole movement and the direction of Bethel. Um, and they do it in the public teaching by saying things like, "We have to take back truths that are that are belong to the children of God. They're part of our inheritance." Um, in this book, there's a rare moment where they just come out and say, "Yeah, it's from the New Age." So this is why this book is something good to highlight. So Bethel is a source of that teaching. Uh, the physics of heaven declares that everyone who wrote a chapter in the book agrees about this stuff, about going into the new age. Let me show you the quote. This is what the book declares, the book that's endorsed by Bethel leadership, written by Bethel people, including Bill Johnson and Benny Johnson. They've got chapters that they've contributed to this book. They also agree, all the authors, quote, also agree that there are precious truths hidden in the new age that belong to us Christians and need to be extracted from the worthless. So, I mean, you can't endorse the book if it's lying about what you believe when it's talking about you. Okay, <laughs> this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is why Bill Johnson's chapters are kind of important. I won't spend a lot of time on them because it's mostly storytelling and, and like parable type stuff. That's what he usually does. But here's a, a phrase from Bill Johnson's chapter. He says, we've been given an inheritance of generations. We've been given an inheritance of hundreds of years of mystics, of revivalists, of those who broke into realms of the spirit to leave something as an inheritance and it needs to matter to someone discover the secret things that god has left for us to ma- uh, left for us excuse me let me read that sentence again discovering the secret things that god has left for us has to matter i believe one of the keys is for us to come to the place where we recover lost mysteries of god by learning how to give honor to those who are willing to sacrifice to make sure those mysteries are reclaimed it's all very very vague you're not even sure how he would apply it but when you put that in this book it's Bethel supporting um, going into the new age and calling this like a, a type of Christian heroism. So it's couched as courageous. Another <clears throat> quote from pages 16 and 17. They say, many in the church have tended to write off all dabblings into quantum mysticism as blasphemous and demonically inspired. However, there are a few courageous Christians who are beginning to speak up and say, wait a minute, there may be some God truth there that really belongs to us. And that we should know about, right? Because you can't find it in the Bible, right? You got to find it from the New Ager. These Christians are spearheading an effort to extract the precious from the worthless, abusing Jeremiah again, and make those truths available to the church at large. Red alert. They want to promote this to the church at large. Bethel's agenda is to create a worldwide move, but it's a worldwide move that's based on an an over-obsession with the supernatural and a practice of fakery and borrowing from unbiblical and even anti-biblical um, beliefs and practices. All right, chapter five. <clears throat> chapter five in this book gets into some really surprising things. It, it does the heavy lifting on making the case for why it's okay for you as a Christian to copy New Age practices and beliefs. You think you've heard some of that, but here's more of it. And this is by Jonathan Welton. He's the one who wrote this chapter. It's called Authentic versus Counterfeit. Jonathan Welton teaches that whenever there is a real, there is sure to be a counterfeit. We shouldn't be afraid to examine the counterfeits because God's power to keep us is mightier than the devil's power to steal us away. Jonathan tells us that we need to be much more concerned about reclaiming all of our stolen goods from the enemy than about being afraid of the deception of counterfeits. This idea of don't be afraid you'll be deceived, it's throughout the book over and over again, and we'll talk a lot more about it. And we need to talk more about it because she got this from Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson doesn't promote her sharing this. She got it from him. 
And she'll tell a story later in another book that she wrote, um, Experiencing the Heavenly Realms, where she actually says she was worried that she was being deceived. And Bill Johnson told her not to worry about it, that uh, that it couldn't happen. This is, um, uh, we'll get there. It's it's disturbing. <clears throat> but consider the logic here. The, Jonathan Welton's logic is, hey, if there's something real, then there's always a counterfeit. Okay, that's not even always true, but that is definitely true. Like there's real money and there's counterfeit money. That's the easiest example. But this changes. The way he's applying that principle is, hey, if there's a counterfeit, then there's something real about the counterfeit. Not that there's something real, but there's something real about the counterfeit. And you can learn about the real thing by studying the counterfeit. That's, you see what he says is not what he means here. And so it's, it's totally unbiblical though. When we get to scripture, Deuteronomy 12 specifically refutes this sort of thing. Deuteronomy 12, 29. Let's look at the Bible here. Because if this was a good practice, we, we should see some example in Scripture of it happening, right? We don't. We see the opposite. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go to and to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did the nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? Don't even ask. Like, you're not even supposed to find out. I don't want you to even... Don't have a religious program that's just meant to educate you on all the weird things that they did. I don't want you to be tempted by it. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they've done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take it or take from it. Not adding to it means don't get your spiritual practices from non, in this case, Jewish religions. Don't get your spiritual practices from non-Jewish religions outside of what God has revealed in the Old Testament. In this, this is who it's applying to initially is the, is the Israelites, right? So God doesn't want them to do that. Now, you'd think if the physics of heaven, if this principle was true, that where there's a counterfeit, there's real, and we can extract the real from the counterfeit, God would say, go to the Egyptians and inquire how they worship their gods and extract the precious from the worthless. This is actually the opposite of what God commands. The Bible is opposed to this, this sort of mixing of religions, which is some call syncretism. And that's what's happening here. Um, let's see the second thing, the second piece of logic that you're getting from Jonathan Welton, um, right in this quote, I just put it back on your screen, um, is that God won't let you be deceived. Now they're going to talk about this a lot, but they think God won't let you be deceived. That's just not going to happen. Of course you wouldn't allow that. But scripture definitely disagrees with this. So is, is deception, and I say this because if you're, if you've read physics of heaven, if you've been part of this movement where you've been encouraged to violate your conscience, that red flag that goes up and says, oh, something's not right here. And they tell you, don't worry about that. God won't let you be deceived that this is an unbiblical thing and you should, you should back off of it. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunningness, your thoughts will be led astray from the seer and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul was very worried that the Corinthians would be deceived and deceived in a myriad of ways, whether it was differences about Jesus or some Holy Spirit related stuff, spiritual stuff like what's coming from this book. Um, Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 11, more concerned about deception. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, right? When they were pagans. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Gosh, that's paganism. He's like, how are you turning back to these sort of pagan things? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. He's deeply concerned about them being deceived. But Jonathan Welton wants you to think that you're inerrant, effectively inerrant. Like, it just can't happen to me. He says, many Christians, and this is page 44 in Physics of Heaven, many Christians have been afraid to reclaim the authentic, reclaim the authentic, this garbage view that's not biblical at all, uh, because they consider the power of the of the counterfeit to be overwhelmingly deceiving. The whole, just, just a reminder, the whole purpose of the counterfeit is to deceive you. That's why it's a counterfeit. It's meant to be deceptive. That's the whole function of a counterfeit. Anything is to deceive you into thinking it's real. And they're like, go, go look at the counterfeit. Find what's real there. Like, it's not real. Don't look at it. I read on. He says, the perception is that one could accidentally fall over the edge and suddenly be operating in the counterfeit without meaning to. Personally, I have a lot more faith in the Lord's ability to keep me than in the devil's ability to steal me away. Jesus said that he has he has us in his hand and no one can snatch us out. Can I remind you that Jesus is the example of being told, jump off this building, jump off this high place, and, and, and God will send his angels. They won't allow you to have your foot dash against a stone. They'll protect you. And Jesus says, don't tempt the Lord your God. Jonathan Welton's like, hey, you could jump on into it. You could just leap on into the new age stuff and you will be protected. God won't let you be harmed. I say, don't tempt the Lord your God. Welton goes on to say, <clears throat> this brings us to the most important point of this chapter. The most important point of chapter five, getting you to not be scared of new age. If there is a counterfeit, there is an authentic that we need to find and reclaim. Every time we see a masquerade, we need to look closely to properly discern what is being counterfeited because a counterfeit is evidence that an authentic exists. Consider the example of counterfeit money. If there is counterfeit money, it proves that there is real authentic money. Just because counterfeit money exists, we don't burn all our real money to avoid deception as if people want to burn the Bible and all spiritual things. Okay, there are some who, who um, they feel like we don't want any spiritual gifts, no prophecy, nobody should speak in tongues, nobody can have anything, miracles. Um, and there I would agree, that's an over over step, right? Like, I think those things seem biblical. Like, I want more prophecy. I want more of God working in miraculous ways in the church. I also hunger for that. But I'm not going to go into the counterfeit to achieve that. I only want the authentic. And I don't think that I have some sort of um, protection where you won't da- let, my, let me dash my feet against a stone, even if I'm jumping off a building, so to speak. Anyway, he goes on. The best response would be to get as many people as possible to use real money so that when counterfeit money appears, it is recognized by all. The fact that there are people operating in counterfeit miracles proves that there are real miracles available to the church. This is the most logically distorted encouragement I've heard. I don't understand how the logic works, right? Because the here's how counterfeit money works. Many of you have heard this analogy. This is not new to you, right? Um, tellers and people who work with money a lot, they're not given a bunch of counterfeit bills to study and learn from in order to find out what real bills are like. This would, this would lead them to not know the difference between counterfeit and real. What they're given is only real bills. They study them, they use them, only real, only real. And whenever they come across a counterfeit, they'll, those who work with money a lot, you know this, you just, you're, you're, you're counting and then you go, well, that one feels weird. 
And then you start examining it. You look it up, you hold it up and you go, oh, it's counterfeit. You don't stop and study to go, what's real about it? Where's the authentic and the counterfeit? His own analogy backfires here. Um, here's another quote from page 43. He says, consider taking this as a personal challenge. If you see a counterfeit, use it as a signpost that points to the authentic. Their obsession is not the authentic now. Their obsession is the counterfeit. It's a distortion as everything's flipped. So now we're going to study cults and new age and other false religions to adopt some of their practices. And we're going to abuse scripture to proof text us along our way to give us encouragement and, and assume that we're impervious to error. We can't be deceived because God's so powerful, not realizing that the, the issue of your deception is not about God's power, but it's about you straying from what he said. All right, we're just getting started. Here's two more quotes. This quote finally makes it clear exactly what he means in case you, in case you couldn't tell. And so no one can no one can say he didn't mean that at this point. With all this talk about counterfeit and authentic, by now you may be scratching your head hoping for examples. The best examples I have found are in the New Age movement. They've been trafficking in the church's stolen goods for a long time. I, I, no, they haven't. They're just doing New Age stuff. I have found that throughout Scripture at least 75 examples of things that the New Age has counterfeited, such as having a spirit guide, trances, meditation, auras, power objects, clairvoyance, clairaudience, and more. These actually belong to the church, but they've been stolen and cleverly repackaged. Um, so what ultimately he's going to do is he's going to build a bridge. So like, okay, um, Paul has a handkerchief and the handkerchief it, it has healing that goes with it. People just touch the handkerchief, they get healed. So this is going to be seen as a power object. But the concept of a power object, that's a new age belief we're projecting that onto the handkerchief where it was just God doing amazing miracles to draw attention to the gospel. We're going to turn it into like a type of thing that you can have too. We could all have power objects, right? So what we do is we take new age categories. We drop them on top of, on top of biblical events. We then make these categories, trances and um, spirit guides and auras. Auras? Where did you find that in scripture? Um, clairvoyance, clairaudience, and, and more. 75 things. Um, yeah. He says, and he goes on and says, when you see a counterfeit, don't shrink back in fear. Okay, I don't have to be afraid to shrink back. Like I just go shrink back in disgust is probably the more appropriate response. He says, let this cry rise in your heart. That is mine and I want it back. New Ager goes, I'm going to lead you to contact your dead relatives. And you go, that is mine and I want it back. New Ager goes, we're going to use tarot cards and check your aura and cleanse your aura. That is mine and I want it back. Let me take you to an example in the New Testament where this is refuted. Acts 19, verses 18 and 19. This is where many people get saved who were into witchcraft, magic. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is a massive amount of money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is a great revival moment. If Jonathan Welton was leading people correctly in his principle about counterfeits, you would never see this in scripture. They would have saved the magic books and they would have started studying them and said, that is mine and I want it back. But Jonathan Welton's principle 
is the opposite of what revival actually looks like, which is only the authentic move of God inspired by the Spirit according to the consistency of what is revealed in Scripture and not going into the counterfeit to reclaim. This is spiritually reckless, dangerous, unbiblical, ungodly, and endorsed by Bethel and encouraged by the by the, the leadership. And you'll see more of this as we go. I'm not exaggerating there. Um, you'll see more of this as we go. <clears throat> In fact, let, let's just do that now. There is a second book written by uh, Judy Davis. Judy Franklin, excuse me. Uh, Ellen Davis is the other author of The Physics of Heaven, right? So Judy Franklin, she has a second book she's written. And this book is called Experiencing the Heavenly Realm. Now, this one, um, it was just most recently updated in 2016. And it was co-authored with Benny Johnson. She, again, that's Bill Johnson's wife. She was a co-pastor for uh, Bethel till she recently tragically died of cancer. Um, and the foreword in this book is done by Bill Johnson. Listen to what he says about not just the book, but about the authors, about Judy Davis, Judy, sorry, Judy Franklin and Benny Johnson. He says the following about them. These two authors are among the most qualified people I know for such an endeavor to write a book about experiencing God. One is my wife and the other is my secretary. This is his endorsement of not only the book, but of their quality in being able to lead others into experiences, spiritual experiences. It get, this will get worse, though, as we keep reading. I'm sorry, some of these quotes are going to be really too small on your screen. I did what I could with the time I had. Um, so here we go, pages 58 and 59 in Experiencing the Heavenly Realm. She says, you first have to realize that it's not unlike seeing with our imaginations. Now, she, she's talking here about how you can have visions and go to heaven, how you can go to heaven, take trips to heaven. And she leads people in trips to heaven all the time. And so she goes, the first thing you got to know is it's not unlike seeing with our imaginations. Bob Jones, the prophet, I would add false in there, uses the term sanctified imagination. Pastor Bill Johnson says a sanctified imagination positions you for dreams and visions. The core of the spiritual supernatural movement that I've seen at Bethel, that I've examined previously and, and, and examining again now, is imagination, um, the will of man instigating fake miracles and visions and, and prophecy. And here they're just they're just saying it out loud. So James Gull, who by the way, James Gull is also, from what I can tell, he's a false prophet. That I, I have a video where I evaluated one of his prophecies. Um, I was asked to evaluate it from by Remnant Radio. And it seems that he was he was reading the newspaper and reporting political speculation as if it was prophecy. I have a video on that link is down below, uh, as well as the, the notes from this video if you want that. Anyways, James Goal states, quote, I am, and this is in the book, Experiencing the Heavenly Realm, I am convinced that any believer can develop the seer capacity. Now I can hear people say, that's just vain imagination and you'll go into error if you imagine stuff. I agree that there's a danger of error if we imagine things, but there's also a danger of missing out on incredibly powerful and godly experiences because of the fear of being deceived. We'll talk about whether this is biblical in a second, but I just want you to understand how important imagination is in the spiritual practices of Bethel. Um, let's now look at where Judy Franklin got this belief that she won't be deceived. And this is this to me is a tragic, s tragic story. This, this is a, a sad, sad story of Judy Frank, Judy Franklin being misled by Bill Johnson and then becoming 
being propped up by Bill Johnson as one who misleads others. What about deception, she says, on page 61 of Experiencing the Heavenly Realm? At first, I was worried about being deceived. I think that was that was the Holy Spirit. So one day, I talked to Bill Johnson about my concern. He responded by saying, then your God is too small and your devil too big. I realized that I loved the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit was my guide and my teacher. I trust him to lead me in the righteous path, and I stay accountable to those who are in my life. I know the word, so I'm no longer afraid of being deceived. Fear comes from the enemy, and he doesn't want us to experience God. This is the pastoral moment where Bill Johnson utterly failed. And this is where they, they look to Pastor Bill as be our anchor, be a spiritual, be a safe spiritual leader for us as we experiment with supernatural things. And he leads them into a path of deception because he tells them, don't worry about being deceived. Just don't worry about it. Then she's going to lead you in a prayer. And this is the prayer she says, and she wants you to pray this too, because she wants to pass on what she learned from Bill. Father, I come right now in the name of Jesus on the authority of your word. I ask for you to open my spiritual eyes, help me to see your realm and your world in a clearer way than ever before. Sanctify my imagination, Lord, stretch the limitations of what I think, hope, or believe, because now my imagination is under your leadership. I'm just going to declare it. Make my imagination a birthing place for your visions, your dreams, your plan, and your purposes. Help my imagination through the power of your spirit be able to receive what you are speaking and doing. In Jesus' name, amen. This is their prayer, not mine. It's on page 64. This is nothing other than saying, I choose to literally close my eyes and imagine God saying things. Imagine trips to heaven and then say that it's God. I'm scared naturally that I'll be deceived, but Pastor Bill has told me I don't need to worry about that. So I'm telling you, you don't need to worry about it either. There's more about imagination in this book, and this is, this is, this is all connected to the physics of heaven too, because it's the same practice. Everything you see, even if you feel like you're only imagining it, has significance. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, but she had doubts. So she says in chapter, uh, or whatever chapter is page 87. Again, I wondered if I was just making all this up. This is something that nagged at her over and over again. So let's explore her doubts more. And this is to me, this was the, this was meant to be the, the red flag that pulled her out of this kind of nonsense. But instead she went deeper, but ultimately because of partly the encouragement of Bill Johnson, everything you see, uh, excuse me, sorry. Um, page 94 as uneasiness about the door came over me. I began to wonder again if I was making this all up in my imagination. Then she talks about her biggest stronghold, page 94. Father called me over to him and asked me what was wrong. So I told him that I doubted that all of this was real as she's sitting there in her living room or something with her eyes closed, just imagining everything. I doubted that all of this was real. I sat there with my head in my hands thinking, he asked me again what was wrong. I told him that I had a great fear that he would do something bad to me or that I would go into deception, be crushed by it, and somehow be humiliated. He told me that this thinking was a stronghold of distrust, that I had to go to the wall and chop it down like the rest of the strongholds the Holy Spirit had shown me. Then in 90, page 95, she gets to the who cares point. Well, I thought, even if I am imagining all of this, so what? I love God more. How could that be wrong? It's obviously a major battle where even Judy, the guide into imagining visions and imagining trips to heaven, she's like constantly plagued with, I feel like I'm making this up. And they admit they're making it up. Sanctify my imagination, God. 
Finally, she comes full circle and blames it on Satan. Page 96, speaking of Satan, she says, he wanted me to think that what I had seen wasn't real, that somehow I had made it up in my own mind, even though she says she's making it up in her own mind earlier on. Like she just says it and then tells you, be ready to make it up in your own mind. We'll talk about that in a moment, how she guides others into these same imaginations. Here's the kind of visions that she has. Some examples now, a couple examples of the, because this book, um, Experiencing the Heavenly Realms, is filled with dozens of different visions of times she travels to heaven and sees all these different things in her imagination. So here's some examples of it. Then the Holy Spirit and I started to dance again. She dances with the Holy Spirit at least five different times in her visions here. Um, And this time, I wasn't just standing while he danced around me. This dance was the soaring, wasn't the soaring dance we'd done previously, but a deliberate step-by-step dance of me learning to follow his lead, learning the gentle pressure of his hand on my back and the subtle movement of his hand in mine. I knew it was to become the dance of two people who would dance a thousand dances together, a couple who would learn to detect even the slightest of nuances from their partner and was able to anticipate a change in direction even before the rhythm became apparent. It's like a bad romance novel. Here's another one. When I awoke, but she says awoke, but she's still, she's, she's here inside of a dream where the, where the, she's climbed up onto the father's chest and she's lying in one of the folds of his garment. And he's super, super gigantic, like crazy mountain big. Right. And she's, she wakes up and she's there kind of like in a fold of his garment. The father put me, put his right hand to me and I climbed up onto his hand. Now I realize the next part of this sounds very strange, but I'm writing just as I saw it. The father tossed me into his mouth like a pill and swallowed me. Traveling fast, I ended up in his heart. I was standing to one side, watching as cells rushed in and out of his heart like waves. Each cell was labeled love. So the cells, the, his individual blood cells are have a word on them written in English, love. I looked across his heart and saw people I knew. I waved at them and they waved back. I even saw my two sons. They were there in the recess of his heart, in the shadows, for they were not walking with God at the time. They weren't joining in our joy at being in the heart of God. They were very stiff, but they were there. Everyone is in God's heart because he loves everyone, but not everyone joins in and those who don't join, don't join in have no joy. I mean, obviously God loves everybody, but I can't tell if this is universalism or not. Um, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, I don't know where her visions are leading her. I became concerned, she says, when I didn't see Pastor Bill and Benny. Now I want you to understand the place that Bill Johnson and Benny Johnson have in the spiritual experiences of people in their, in their circle. When she doesn't see Pastor Bill and Benny in her vision, she gets worried the whole vision's not going to work. So she says, maybe this isn't of the Lord, I wondered. But just then, Pastor Bill and Benny rode in on one of the love cell waves. They rode the love cells like you would ride a horse. And Pastor Bill was even wearing a cowboy hat. They had been looking around and they told some other friends to come with them so they could show us what they'd seen. Each of us jumped on a love cell and began to follow them. They led us by God's throat so we could hear what his voice sounded like. Then we went up to his eyes where we stopped. Here we could walk up to his eyes and look out like we were in an observation tower. Yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna move on. This is how she trains others to have visions like her. And not only how, but when and where she trains them. She says here in a chapter called chapter 25 called Taking Others to Heaven at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, BSSM. This is actually at Bethel in Redding, California. They bring people from all over the world to train them in their in their strange 
supernatural practices and then send them out into their churches to change the churches. This has actually caused church splits. I've heard from people whose whole churches split because people went to Bethel, came back with weird practices, tried to recruit everybody to do these things, and then it ends up causing a lot of tension and, and causes church splits. So she goes, at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, near the start of each new school term, the leadership has me, Judy Franklin, come to do my heaven thing. I share with them how much it looks like imagination. But it comes from one spirit, and it is with the leading of the Holy Spirit. How do you know? You just trust that it is. Don't worry about it. You can't be deceived. I tell the students to relax and be peaceful because they can't, they can't enter into an encounter when they're striving. By this time, their excitement is palpable in the air, sort of like children going on their first ride at Disneyland. Uh, I think what she does is she tells a bunch of stories of her own examples. I went and I saw this and I saw that. And this primes them for experiencing their own sort of self-made visions. Then she guides them and tells them, use your imagination. It's okay. It's all right. Just trust. You know, God is bigger than Satan. So you can use your, you can just imagine what you want. Um, let me just share one verse that weighs in on this. Do I need a verse to tell you that you can't just imagine prophecy? Um, apparently. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When you locate your, your vision, your trip to heaven, your prophecy in your own will, I am choosing to experience, I'm choosing to prophecy now. I'm just going to get a prophecy now. I'm just going to get a vision now. You're locating it in the will of man, not in the instigation of the Holy Spirit. So it's not prophecy is what I'm suggesting here. That's how you know it's not prophecy. That's a test. It came from you. So then it's, it's not prophecy. And don't just be like, but the Holy Spirit's going to use my imagination. They're like, yeah, no. The Holy Spirit part is the fake thing that I'm adding on to the fact that I'm just imagining. I mean, the Holy Spirit's real. <laughs> it's fake that you, that he's leading your imagination when it's you're just instigating your own imagination. Let's look at how else she leads people. We're almost done with her, her, her other book. Uh, <clears throat> same chapter, Taking Others to Heaven. She says, here's how I lead others past their obstacles into the kingdom where they can begin to see with the eyes of the Spirit. First, I tell them to close their eyes and not to open them until I give them permission. Then I tell them to picture Jesus out in front of them. He doesn't have to be real clear because when I first saw him, it was just shadowy. I wait and then ask them to raise their hands if they have a picture of him. Not prophecy, just, just literally just your, raise your hand if you can imagine Jesus in your head. What's the next step? Next, I tell students to walk up to Jesus and then wait. Right? This is what New Agers do in their guided visions and stuff like that, and visualization and stuff. Uh, I asked again how many are standing right in front of him. By this time, his presence is growing very strong because we've entered into a heavenly atmosphere where people are anxious for an encounter with the loving God. No, that's nonsense. Okay, this, You're literally just imagining things. Then I tell them that he's going to do something. How do I know? Because this is what he told me to do. Remember, this book is not spiritual wisdom, <laughs> it's not, but yeah, that's, I'm going to say, this is what God told me. That's how I know. Trust me. Take my word for it. I don't understand all the whys and wherefores. I'm just a little girl trying to share the love of my Abba Daddy. This is where it starts to get very interesting. I have them raise their hands. If Jesus has done something, then I go around them with a microphone and I ask them what he did. Their eyes are still closed because I don't want them to be distracted. Oh, the things I hear. He hugged me. He kissed me. He's dancing with me. He put his hand on my head. It's the touch. Jesus loves to touch us. Isn't that the way love is here in our world? When we love someone, we want to be near them. We want to touch them. 
do you really think it's any different with him? Then I tell them he wants to say something to them. Right? She prompts them. I wait for a while. Then I go to the people who raise their hands in affirmation that Jesus has spoken to them and have them share, I love you. I'm proud of you. I have so many wonderful things to show you. I have a plan for your life. To me, this is basically what looks like is happening, right? Um, this taps deeply into the vulnerability of people and their own insecurities and their hopes and their, and their, and their sort of weak hearts full of issues, like we all are. You imagine Jesus, who you know is the source of God's love and, 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 and the bridge to God for you. Um, and so you imagine him and you go up and so you, you project what you want to hear, what would be fulfilling, what would be joyous. Now, it might even be true. God loves you, right? That's true. But that doesn't mean that in this moment, this Jesus you're imagining is the one saying that and is the real Jesus. But this did not start with Judy. And this is, this is a big issue here. This started with Bill Johnson. And I shared this in my initial review of Bill Johnson, his philosophies, his teachings, his, his practices and all that. Um, I have video clip footage of it there as well. You guys can check out. I've linked that video down below my assessment of Bill Johnson. But in that video, he talks about how there was no prophetic stuff happening in the church he was part of initially. And he wanted to stir up prophecy. So what he did was very similar to what Judy did here. In fact, I would say Judy may have learned it partly from him. He had his staff sit down in a staff meeting and he had them close their eyes and imagine Jesus. And he says, now, what do you think Jesus would say to us right now? Then they went around the room. I don't remember if they closed their eyes or not. Maybe they did. I don't recall now. The clips in that previous video, you guys can check it out. And they went around the room and they each said what they thought Jesus might say to them as a church if he was present. He went around the room. They all made a statement. They thought, you know, fabricated in their imagination what Jesus might say. Then at the end of it all, he goes, and here I can quote him pretty much word for word. He goes, do you know what you guys just did? You prophesied. He taught them to fake prophecy from their imagination. This is what Judy teaches Bethel students to do every single year. I don't know if she's still doing it, but she did for year after year after year. This is what Bethel endorses. This is where Bill Johnson says she's a, one of the best leaders into God experiences you can have. And she literally just teaches you to fake and imagine prophecy and stuff like this. Um, this is this is not healthy. It's not good. This is why we, we should avoid the teaching. We should avoid the influence that's coming from Bethel. And if you're part of Bethel, I would think that it's it's time to leave. And it, there's more. We'll get into more. There's more. But let's let's get into it. Here's the last thing we'll have from this book. Finally, um, and I won't share all of it, but she'll guide you through the process after telling you a bunch of stories and a bunch of revisions and how she leads others. Then in in, in towards the end. The, towards the last chapter, she's going to say, having your own heavenly encounter. And so she says, in this chapter, I want to help you personally experience the heavenly realm. You will notice some repeat material from chapter 25. This is specifically geared toward helping you personally engage with heaven in the same way that the Bethel students did. The first thing for you to be mindful of is that the experiences look very much like imagination, but they come from one spirit. How do you know that? Do we just say it? We just say it and trust it because, you know, God's big, so I can say what I want. While some are leery of imagination, well, not leery, I'm just sober about it. Like, you don't have to be scared of imagination. Just be sober-minded about it. Like scripture says, be sober-minded. I do not believe it should be an item of concern when it's under the lordship of Jesus. That doesn't mean anything, okay? That, that ultimately, Jesus is under the lordship of my imagination. If I'm imagining him, imagining words in his mouth, and then declaring that he said that, then he's under the lordship of my imagination at that point. He is the author of imagination. Um, 
Okay. It only brings him glory when we consecrate our imagination to him. What does that mean? It's just empty words. Not emptying it, but filling it with heavenly images. So you fill your own imagination with things you imagine from heaven. And... All right, let's go back to the, the book Physics of Heaven. Now that you've got some background, um, in the book Discovering the Heavenly Realm or Experiencing Heavenly Realms, she doesn't say she got any of this from the New Age. In the Physics of Heaven, which came out later, she admits this came from the New Age, which means probably for years she's teaching others New Age practices under the name of Christ, but not telling them where she got it. Physics of Heaven was a point where they were bold enough to come out and say it out loud where they were getting this stuff from. At least that's how it appears. So two major themes follow in the book Physics of Heaven, picking up where we left off. The power of, this is where we're going to get into science. Quantum mysticism, sound and vibrations, and woo-woo science, and you're going to find out some interesting things about the authors, the, the, one of the authors of this book, who claims he's a quantum physicist, and he is, he is something else. So, at Pentecost, they say they heard a sound. <clears throat> this book is just a precursor to the revelation that God is going to use to give us when he releases a new transforming sound. The next thing the Lord told me was that soon he would release a sound from heaven that will literally change the structure of how we think. You've asked me, what do you think that sound that uh, sound was that came? And you've mentioned a vibration. I believe the vibration takes place in us. There are negative and positive vibrations. That's a super new agey thing. Po a positive vibration is like a portal into heaven. A negative vibration is like cancer. When the power comes, the positive will kill the negative. It's a vibration. Everything vibrates. Rocks, trees, everything vibrates. When we vibrate, I think it's opening a portal. And this is where you check yourself in for psychiatric counseling. Let me read on. But instead, instead, this is this is spiritual coaching from Bethel. This coming new sound isn't just something that you pick up with your ears. It's greater, it's greater than anything you can understand. It can change DNA. I don't think these guys talk about DNA, but you're like, do you know what DNA, like you do not want your DNA rando changed. It's dangerous. It's caused major medical issues. So we're genetically growing up. We're becoming like an instrument being tuned where our genetics are getting aligned with the father's genetics in harmony with him. The father's genetics? My DNA, God has genetics and DNA? Well, he has blood cells that say love on him. Is that like an actual thing? We're all in God's heart. Was that literal or fake? I don't know. It's hard to tell. But God does not have genetics, right? He, he is not physical. Vibrations, frequencies, and magic woo-woo stuff. So um, I'm going to summarize some of the stuff, but the authors will go on to talk in the following pages about uh, radio waves, light waves, magnetism, and how they can be used for healing and how the scientists are, and they use this woo sort of like not just cutting edge, but like over the edge kind of science claims. And some of it's related to some real science, but they don't deal with it in the sober fashion at all. So it becomes pseudoscience. Here's an example. Many scientists are convinced those experiences indicate that thoughts, this is quantum physics, thoughts and emotions, as well as words, carry vibrational frequencies that radiate into our surroundings and not only affect our own thoughts and emotions, but also affect everything and everyone around us. So scientists are convinced that your emotions vibrate into the world and affect everyone around you, not your expressions and they perceive your, no, no, like actual vibrations on a on a microscopic level, a quantum level. Um, they'll also go on to say in this book that if you have the right vibrations, the right frequencies in your vibrations, you can get miracles. Here's an example of the gobbledygook science you'll get. However, if sound is vibrational, 
then we must understand that it can stimulate our other senses. What if the men and women at Pentecost had only embraced what they heard? It's possible that they would have missed God altogether. Instead, after hearing a new sound, they were willing to allow that sound to cause a synesthetic response, I'll explain that in a second, in them, through this cross-wiring of their spiritual senses, the neural pathways of the spirit realm created a myriad of spiritual encounters. So the New Age is very interested in synesthetic stuff. Like in science, synesthetic responses is like where someone, they see the color blue and it causes it, uh, um, their brain's wiring's kind of messed up and it, it causes them to taste a flavor. Like it triggers signals of flavor so they can they say they can taste blue but they're not actually tasting what blue objectively tastes like they're 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 having a wiring issue um so that's a synesthetic response but in the new age they want to say like oh no no we're we're tying we're opening your third eye we're tying together all the senses spiritual and sight and sound and it's and it turns into this woo thing that's what she's talking about here that that at pentecost when they heard the sound they didn't just hear it they they, they, they saw the sound and they tasted the sound and, and it, none of that's biblical. It's just all new age woo stuff projected onto the Bible. Speaking of the Bible, they're going to pretend that God in the Bible used vibrations. This is a new age, new age. Some new agers are really focused on vibrations. Um, use vibrations to create that vibration is the method God used to create things. So they'll say the following things. An earthquake is nothing more than sound modulation between two layers of stone formations that come together miles under the earth. So earthquakes are caused by just sound. Okay, that's not really true. Okay, we're talking about friction and pressure, uh, geo pressures going on. Uh, crop circles, she says, an interesting fact is that cro some crop circles duplicate the patterns Jenny created with sound, which has led scientists to theorize that crop circles may be formed by sound frequency anomalies. Essential oils, they say on page 62, have vibrational frequencies that match and are believed to enhance the vibrational frequencies of healthy cells in your body. I mean, I, okay, I'm just saying off the cuff, I, mean, I don't, I'm not, a, I don't know all this stuff about essential oils, but I'm just saying everything they just said sounds like woo woo fake science to me. We will have a real scientist evaluate some of their claims in a moment, but the way they project this onto the Bible in this book is every time the Bible mentions the word sound, it's taken as evidence of the power of sound to change reality. Like it, vibrational frequencies go in and they do magical stuff. Then your, your mission then, according to the book, is to discover the mysteries of vibrations like New Agers do, because they got it right with Extract the Precious, in order, in order to do more miracles. And we're not going to call it sound and vibrations like the way the New Age, we'll call it the sound of heaven. Interesting, Bill Johnson preaches on the sound of heaven even today. Let's talk about the God vibration. This is um, on chapter eight. Literally, the chapter is called the God vibration. It says the Holy Spirit vibrated over the waters and then that changed stuff through vibration energy. This is their interpretation of Genesis one. The Spirit brooded over the waters. He vibrated and his vibrations changed reality. He did creation through vibration. Vibrations, they say, are the forces that hold particle matter together. Light waves, sound waves, and electromagnetic waves released by the God vibration... What is that? Is that a scientific thing? No, this is just woo, woo, woo. The God vibration enabled the particle matter of the universe to take on specific physical form. Now, you, know, you, you would think this meant that the Holy Spirit vibrated over the waters and then made them into water. Like they were just, it was just like a particle soup and then he turned them into form. But the earth was already there. There was just more creation to take place, but there was dry land 
and there was water or it wasn't dry it was wetland and water and it just hadn't been separated yet um so this doesn't fit the description that they give nor does the bible suggest that by vibrations god the brooding the image of brooding is of a of a, of a hen right there's a there's a like a birthing that's taking place i'm 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 guarding in the developmental process i'm controlling and protecting and guarding and that's that's the idea of the holy spirit in genesis 1 i think so sound becomes power in this um not god what i mean by that is in scripture it's just god who has power just by divine fiat like he's just like let there be light boom there's light but we're going to say that the sound itself is the thing that had the power we're going to move the power a little bit away from god we'll still say god's the source of it but we're going to move it slightly so you can use sound too so this book this this book has chapter nine which is called angel encounters and they talk about how there's going to be a water car that god's giving them it's going to solve an energy crisis i won't get into that there's just too much stuff to talk about um it'll be a water-powered car they said and and i mean sure scientists are always theorizing random and wild things but they're taking it and thinking it makes sense in light of their new age woo and that's that's the mistake so they go on in page 92 god began to teach me through all this through this angel she was communicating with an angel supposedly about and remember she can just imagine stuff and say that it's god like this is this is a really important principle the most important thing is just it's okay to just imagine things and say that that was the lord so she says, God began to teach me through this angel about sound and the power of the spoken word. He said that because God spoke his creative will, man can also speak words that create. This is a false teaching. Because God spoke and it created, we can speak words that create. You know, the scripture says the power of death and life are in the tongue. This is actually not meaning you can proclaim life and someone lives and death and someone dies it's saying that your words have such a big impact in your life that you to do the consequence of what you say you could live or die it's a very pragmatic thing about the power of the tongue it's not a magical thing at all um you know you, you chew out your boss and you call him names you lose your job you go into poverty you lose your house you die on the on the street that was all the power of words because of you what you said so the, the power of words in that sense but not words having their own power <laughs> that's not the idea um very new age very new age here this this quote on your screen but not biblical at all it's either demonic or delusional i don't see another option she's either making up this angel in her own head or satan's taking advantage of her of her gullibility to teach her things and lead her astray and use her to lead others astray it's very tragic it's very very tragic how important is this let's look at the next quote page 103 we're in the physics of heaven here, right? Perhaps the most significant thing we can do to position ourselves for the new sound is to, the most significant thing is to start recovering truths that are currently held captive by many unbelievers. Many new agers, for example, have already begun to explore the phenomenon of synesthesia, synesthesia, excuse me, and are desperately trying to tune in to multiple realms of spiritual reality. In a small measure, many have succeeded in the spiritual quest. run from bethel please everything they do is not wrong but at the core of bethel their their unique flavor what they offer is we want radical spiritual revival radical miracles radical things and at the core of how they get that is all these weird practices that are leading into ima vain imaginations instead of real prophecy um trips to heaven that are faked and encouraged people are encouraged to fake um, I remember hearing about how Bethel trains people to prophesy and 
um, in, in group gatherings. And I, I heard it on a, on a tape where, where Bill Johnson said something to the effect of, we don't usually share this in public. Like, like it's meant to be private because they know that people won't like it. But they line people up two lines and they have each, this whole line rather, prophesy, just prophesy something to that side. Just say something prophetically over there. It doesn't matter if God's leading it or not. And then if you get it right, great. And if not, don't worry about it. Because they don't care if it's real. They think that you have the authority in your imagination to just make stuff up and do... This is why you, you could just declare a healing without any prompting by the Holy Spirit genuinely that God is healing that person. You could just declare it. When it doesn't happen, like when they had baby... I think it was baby Olive. This little baby who, who passed away so, so sad in their congregation. And they had like a three-day vigil where they were declaring she was going to be raised from the dead. Declaring it. De not just asking. Declaring and demanding and then it didn't happen. This is just one of the many, many moments Bethel will go through 150,000 times that demonstrate that something's wrong in the movement. But they are caught, they're protected from going down that road by saying things like, we can't, we can't stop and think about that because it will take away our anointing. It's not an anointing, guys. It's fake. They're trafficking in, in fakery. And this is where, I'm not saying everything they're doing is demonic, but it will open the door for the enemy to lead them. Because we as people are susceptible to being led astray. That's the nature of humanity, even Christians. So the most important thing they can do. Oh, God. Then they try to tie it to David. Let's see, let's see how they go to scripture again. They say, be like David. Go into the new age and pull out stuff to, to be Christian. So what does this mean for us? They say on page 103. I believe that one of the spiritual discoveries of the New Age movement could be likened to one to the time in the Old Testament when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. In both cases, then and now, that which belongs to the church fell into the hands of unbelievers. So in order to posture ourselves for the next move of God, like King David, we must take back what is ours. Certain dynamics, such as synesthesia, quantum physics, and vibrations are God's stuff. And we must not be afraid to seize what belongs to the creator of all things. However, I suspect that many have a fear of being deceived by things they may not understand. As Judy had this fear, rightly so, but was, you know, alleviated, wrongly comforted out of this fear. However, um, she says she suspects we're afraid. Like Israel in the Old Testament, they're quick to relinquish anything that appears different or spooky in the spirit realm to the hands of the Philistines. Now, that never happened in Israel. Like in the story with David, they didn't relinquish. Like they, they brought, let's remind, remember the story. Saul sends the ark out in front of the, and with the, the, the army so that God's favor will be with them. But he's in rebellion to God. And you can't just use God's ark like a tool to control God because you can't just control God. And then they lose the battle and they lose the ark. They didn't send the ark away because they thought it was spooky. This is just her projecting her weird allegory onto the Old Testament. In which case, she says, we need the spirit of David to rise up within us and declare, I'm taking back what belongs to God. Everything about this is wrong, this use of scripture. For one, they got nothing from the Philistines. At no point did the Israelites learn spiritual practices from the Philistines that they were supposed to do. When they did borrow from the Philistines and they had high places, it was considered one of the worst sins that constantly plagued Israel throughout time. They were not supposed to do this. This was an evil thing, not a model. Um, so they never got anything from the Philistines. And the ark wasn't from the Philistines. It's not like the Philistines built an ark and the Israelites were like, hey, it's not in our scripture, but boy, it looks like a God thing. Let's go take it. Rather, the ark was built by the Israelites according to the clear teaching of Scripture, and it was 
you know, given by God and you find it in the Bible, they were just coming to take it back. Not because the Philistines hijacked it from them. This is just such a distortion of scripture. But this is because their desire for spiritual movement is more important than carefully handling the word of God. I was definitely not harsh enough against uh, Bill Johnson and, and, and the practices of Bethel, but that's because at the time I'd watched a bunch of his teachings and I shared what I, what I knew. This was years ago. I've actually said this for a few years now that I wasn't harsh enough. This is just the first time I've made a video where I'm really talking about it in detail. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we, we need to, I, I'm not saying everybody at Bethel is not a believer. And many of you want me to say that. And I think that you're not thinking cl clearly and carefully about this. I think the believers there's unbelievers at Bethel, just like there's unbelievers at any any place. Well, rain's coming now. But the believers at Bethel, the ones who are believers, they need to confront. And if they can't change the practices, which I really doubt they can change it because it's entrenched as the DNA of the church, then they just need to leave. They just need to leave and, and take people with them who, who they can influence. It, it's a sad, sad thing. Um, sad, sad thing. So David didn't rise up Here's another thing that's wrong with this quote on your screen. David never rose up and said, I'm taking back what belongs to God. The oxen were sent by the Philistines carrying an, the ark and it just wandered over to Israel. Like there was no rising up of David. You'd think David went to the Philistines and, and said, hey, can I talk to your spiritual leaders and find out how you worship your gods? I feel as though there's notes I should take on your practices and bring them back into Israel with me. Like this is, a, it's evil. So she abuses the terms. Uh, the other thing that's wrong with this quote is the terms quantum physics, vibrations, and synesthesia. She abuses those terms. We'll talk more about that when I talk about a, in just a moment, a quantum physicist who actually did a review of the book Physics of Heaven. And that I'm very grateful for, Martin Krauss, who did that. And I have, a, I have the whole review free for you on my website. I'll, I'll have a link for it down below. You can check it out whenever you want. So what practices... Am I supposed to embrace specifically, right? Let's look at one of the examples. And, and things are going to get weirder, by the way. I hope you'll stick with me. Um, not for, for views and stuff. I, those, that's never my main concern. But because when you watch the whole video and you see how weird this stuff is, it gets worse. We're going further into the rabbit hole as we go here. Um, when you see lasers being used to prophesy, I kid you not, I have video footage. Um, it will help you realize that this is a big deal. It's a big deal. So what are we supposed to embrace specifically? She says in uh, page 105, what if God chooses to speak more frequently in colors and numbers in this next outpouring? What if he uses colors, numbers, smell, feeling, and sound at the same time, or speaks to us in a combination of modalities that are physical, mental, and emotional, or even vibrational? Are we really open to new things in God? Now this is called the theology of what if, right? It's meant to be, what am I supposed to embrace? Anything! Anything that's done in the name of God, even if it looks totally like New Age or other, you know, un unchristian beliefs, as long as you say it's Christian now, that's pretty much good enough. Um, it's just the what if theology. You saying God can't do that? God can't do that? No, but you're saying God is doing that. That's the problem. So this is how prophecy can come from my own heart, or how Satan can deceive New Age people, and I'm going to bring it into Christianity. Let's talk a little bit about quantum physics. Page 17 says, I believe that a great work of God is in process as he restores knowledge and insights that have been lost to Christians but are now hidden in the teachings and practices of quantum mysticism. This, of course, implies that the apostles themselves were quantum mystics. Right? That Paul the Apostle was like, well, you know, 
there is the observation principle. <laughs> this is this is stuff that um, you know, like, well, is it a wave or a particle? This is this is what Jesus was talking about the other day. <laughs> this is not in scripture at all. This is not something you're restoring. This is, but here's the other thing. It's also mocked by actual physicists. So let's talk about that. Martin Krauss, right here did a review of the book Physics of Heaven, and he was gracious enough to provide it for free. I've got a link down below. You can click it. It's on BibleThinker.org as well, but you can find it most easily just in the description of this video. And you can have it for free. You can look at it while you're listening to this, if you like. Read the whole thing. Um, he says, the physics of heaven are used. Let's find out what's wrong scientifically, because they do this woo stuff, and normal people like you and me don't know quantum physics enough to respond. So we just have to ignore it or, or give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, you don't have to now, okay? Because here's some details. The physics of heaven argues that there was a significant overlap and agreement between quantum physics, New Age, and Christianity. However, their representation and interpretation of quantum physics contains severe errors, eroding the justification for any spiritual implications. There's three major claims that Alan makes in chapter 12. One is the belief of the power of consciousness to influence material reality. Martin Krauss says, Dr. Krauss says, Ellen Davis claims that in chapter 12, a conscious human observer is necessary for the electron to make the transition from non-local state. This is wrong. Um, then I'm not going to get into the details of all this. All the main point is they're wrong about what quantum physics actually says. Um, Krauss cites a particular quantum physicist, Niels Bohr, who got a Nobel Prize and stuff. What's interesting is Niels Bohr is the one who's proving Ellen Davis wrong, yet Ellen Davis... And an infamous guy we're going to talk about later, David Van Covering, both of them will appeal to Niels Bohr as evidence that they're right about quantum physics. So they're really, they're really being ultimately deceptive here. At least uh, David Van Covering does. I don't. I think Ellen Davis does. I'm trying to recall now. So a second issue is they they say that. Um, Belief in a single universal consciousness that permeates all things. This is a new age belief that supposedly quantum physics quantum physics supports. This is shocking. A universal consciousness that permeates all things. Here's quotes from the actual book, Physics of Heaven. What's even more shocking was that at the quantum level, the world no longer acted like a machine, but seemed to act more like something alive that senses the desire of the observer and responds to it. They go on, quantum physics implies that everything that exists, even atoms and subatomic particles, has a form of consciousness, sometimes called a mind, and is interconnected through a universal consciousness, the one mind. This is what they got from the New Age, right? It's, it's, it, it, if, if you say the one mind is God, it's pantheism. If you don't, it's like a, it's like a type of deification of the universe um, still. It's like related to that, maybe panentheism. I don't know what the term is you're going to use for it, but it, the point is it's unbiblical, unchristian, and untrue, and unscientific. This is what Dr. Krauss says about this. Davis seems to take Einstein's expression, spooky at a distance, literally. However, quantum entanglement is, the exact, is exactly the opposite of conscious action. When the state of one of the entangled particles is fixed by the measurement, the other state is fixed as well. There's no decision to be made anymore, no random factor involved. The second particle will always have exactly the same, exactly the properties required to complement the measured properties of the first one. Here's a simpler way to put it. The overwhelming majority of the physical literature sees the physical world as an inanimate apart from as in, inanimate, apart from biological life forms. In other words, the, the idea that quantum physics or the Bible 
teach universal consciousness is not true at all. This is just a new age woo belief. They're abusing science and abusing scripture to teach you new age things and then act like you can then tap into the to the power and the vibrations and the consciousness of the material world. It's unbiblical, 100%. Uh, part of the whole concept of Genesis 1, um, and for time I won't go into a bunch of detail here, but Genesis 1 is that God made the universe and the universe itself is not a being, it's a creation, but not a, not a being. Whereas they would personify and deify the pagan religions the moon and the, and the earth and things like this. Um, but that's not the case with scripture. So we can test it with one other verse. Let me take you to Psalm 115. Here's, what, here's the idea we're testing. The idea that all matter in space in the universe is hearing your vibrations, including your intent, and is able to respond by granting you what you want. Right? Sound like the secret? Sound like Oprah Winfrey? Sound like New Age? Because it is. And you're being asked to embrace this as a Christian truth that was lost to the New Age. Let's read Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8. And let's see if you can follow the logic here of why this would refute the idea that there's universal consciousness. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They have ears but do not hear. Idols, according to their woo version of quantum physics, would actually occupy space, and, and there's there's quantum space there that's hearing the vibrations, sensing what you want, and is able to respond creatively to the things that you desire. But that can't be true if scripture says that the idols have ears, but the ears can't hear. David Van Covering in his chapter will talk about this too, and, and his talks, his lectures online will talk about this, where he's like, yeah, everything hears you, the walls, everything hears you, all creation's listening to you. Um, no, that's a distortion of other biblical ideas, but yeah. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. They become fools. They can't hear. So scripture would seem to refute that. Did you need me to share that with you? I think you probably didn't, <laughs> but I'm going to honor the word of God by bringing it to bear on these things. So another thing, a third thing they believe, and they want you to believe as you get later and later in the book is that everything, even our thoughts and emotions, emit energetic vibrations. This is quantum mysticism, but is it actually quantum physics? Dr. Krauss says, New Age quackery indeed makes such claims, but there's no scientific basis for this. Quantum fields fluctuate, right? You can call that vibration if you want, but Dr. Krauss says it's not related to emotional or spiritual effects in any way. Not emotional or spiritual, just that there's fluctuations. They're just getting woo on you. Krauss also points out a deceptive way they abuse the scientific terms positive and negative energy. Did you catch it earlier in one of the one of the quotes? They they talked about positive energy, negative energy. Positive energy promotes healing. Negative energies like causes cancer, stuff like that. Um, and then they connect this to quantum physics, right? For Ellen and the New Ager, negative energy is like bad juju that leads to sickness. Even bad attitudes is negative energy, but that's not what's meant in quantum physics by the term or in physics by the term negative energy. So therefore according to um, to them. Mo this is this is the physics of heaven, page 125. Therefore, most metaphysical New Age and Eastern healing modalities center around techniques for ridding ourselves of negative energies, right, aura cleansing, and balancing our flow of positive energy in order to reach a state of better health and higher consciousness. This is um, not right. Krauss explains that for physicists, negative energy is merely a way of saying something like, this electron has less energy 
than what it would need to get away from the vicinity of a nucleus. So it has negative energy in relation to the energy it would need to break away. Let me explain this in, in pickle jar terminology. <laughs> My wife, perhaps, has negative energy to open this pickle jar. She, does, she has energy, but not enough to open the jar. So maybe she needs me because I have positive energy. I have enough energy to open the jar, but it's not positive. Like, oh, I feel positive or oh, I feel negative. Like that's a total distortion of the meaning of the terms and calling it uh, quantum physics. In chapter one, here's something they say about zero point energy. If you guys watch The Incredibles, which I thought was a really fun movie, there's like the zero point energy thing, right? Well, this is this is the, the, the scientific idea of zero point energy is a real thing. And zero point energy is basically if you take a, a, a chunk of empty space, even though there's a vacuum, there's no, there's nothing there in a sense. Um, there's it's still a quantum realm, and there's still like things going on there, and there is a, a positive amount of energy. So zero point energy is like when you know you take everything out of a space and you have the lowest amount of energy possible in the universe. There's still some energy there. That's my understanding of it. I hope I didn't clumsily communicate it. But here's um, what they say about it on page seven. One square yard of zero-point field contains enough energy to boil all the water in the world. I believe that energy, that power, that light released by God at the beginning of time is what's in us and around us right now. That's God's power. Notice how they do this. They move from God to the power of God being accessible through creation. This feels like the idolatry of, of, of old times in a new form. So it's important we see how this is different than Christianity, right? Biblically, God is all powerful. You ask and he does miracles or he says, no, it's up to him. The power is in him and everything depends on his will. Um, their version though, is that God's power is embedded in you and embedded in the universe and you can tap into it and control it as you wish. And you can be in charge of it if you're good enough at quantum mysticism. So God's, this is why Bethel will make God's will a blank check. God always wants to heal. God always wants to prophesy. God always wants to speak to you. In fact, you can lead God. I, I tell you, Bill Johnson says, you can even lead God in proclaiming things he'll do that he wasn't going to do, and now he'll do them because you led him in that. So yeah, that is an important move. It's a weird thing, but I think that's what's happening. Dr. Krauss says this about zero-point energy. He says, not even one gram of water could be heated from room temperature to the boiling point with zero point energy. <laughs> it's just fake science in this book, quantum mysticism. The next, the next, you can't boil all the oceans in the world, not even a gram of water. Um, but Judy Franklin says in, in uh, page seven, as I questioned God about whether we really have the power to move a mountain, I slowly realized that if this power within us is a zero point field, if this power is what God first spoke into the creation of the earth because he wanted Adam and Eve to be powerful, then his original intent for them was to multiply and expand the Garden of Eden to the point where our entire world would be like an Eden. I don't know where she's getting this. Neither do you. Okay, this is just, it's non sequiturs. But Dr. Krauss says that the zero point energy in a human body could only move a mountain if the mountain weighed one hundredth of a microgram. One human body, because zero-point energy is actually a very small amount of energy. So here's a gram, right? A paper clip weighs about a gram. So here, let me, uh-oh. All right, here's my paper clip. This is about one gram right there. There you go. And I now I can't get you to focus on it. Whatever. You know what a paper clip looks like. That's a gram. Now, imagine if you take one millionth of a gram. That means I cut the paper clip into a million pieces. That's a microgram. But it's a hundredth of a microgram. So I'd have to take this paper clip and I'd have to chop it up into a hundred million pieces 
And then the zero point energy in one human body could move one of those pieces. It's sad and funny at the same time. How they try to connect zero point energy to the Bible. Are you wondering that? Where do you guys get zero point energy in the Bible? Like, how do you do that? Let's look at the next quote. And then we'll get into soon here. David Van Covering. Oh man, that guy. We have the zero point field within us. Individually, each of us may not have a square yard of zero point energy in us, but two or three of us together do. And the Bible says that whatever two or three agree on will be done. So we truly have the power within us and around us to move many, many mountains. Reminder, Chris, the, the prophet of Bethel, he has fully endorsed this book. He's literally written an endorsement in the opening book. Banning Liebscher, Jesus Culture Pastor, has endorsed this book. And they talk about how she's like, these women are going to lead people into deeper experiences with God. Bill Johnson contributed whole chapters to it. He helped guide Judy Franklin into this place where she's believing these things and encouraged her on this path when she had doubts, rightful doubts about it. So what they're doing is they're taking Matthew 18, 20, which says two or more gathered together, which is about church discipline, by the way. It's about church discipline, not about moving mountains. Um, and they're saying, oh, it takes two people or three people because there's not enough zero point energy in one person to move a mountain. So you have two or three people, you got even more zero point energy. Remember, it's not God's power. It's not God who's doing the thing by his power. It's rather God put power in you and you're just finding out how to access it. Like you're Neo and one day you go, I know Kung Fu and you're the one and now you can do things. You can stop bullets. Right. So the key issue, the key issue here I see is they treat science in the Bible the same way, right? Science, it doesn't matter what science really says. We're going to distort it and, and use new age woo and call it science. It doesn't matter what the Bible really says. We're going to use new age woo and say the Bible connects with that. They're not really connecting Christianity to science. They're connecting it to new age woo. On page 113, they kind of admit something like that. They say, using quantum physics to reinforce Eastern mystical beliefs about the nature of the oneness of all reality and the power of human consciousness to create and manipulate that reality. This is evil. They need to repent. Bethel needs to repent. Judy Franklin needs to repent. Ellen Davis needs to repent. David Van Covering needs to repent. Chris Vallotton needs to repent. This is evil, twisted, deceptive, manipulative, unbiblical, unscientific, untrue, dishonoring to Christ. I, I don't know how it could be more clear. In chapter 13, they bring in their quantum physicist. He's not a quantum physicist. I'll get there in a second. It's a lie in the book. In this chapter, David Van Covering explains that because of the laws of quantum physics, our spoken intent can bring something in from the unseen realm to the seen. And we can make the non-material appear in material form. I didn't even get into parallel universes. They actually talk about parallel universes. That's this unseen realm stuff. That That's the way they use the term. Um, anyway, we don't even talk about that. It's just weird. <clears throat> so who's David Van Covering? Who is this guy? Well, David describes himself as a scientist and inventor on page 133. He says he learned to work with electrons and photons. He talks about how his studies in quantum mechanics led him to the works of Max Planck, Albert Einstein, and Niels Bohr and others all of whom would all call him a quack if they actually read what he writes about these things. He says, through quantum physics and spiritual revelation, the Holy Spirit confirmed keys to understanding physical reality. The book itself even claims that he's a, he's a quantum physicist on page 185. It, it does claim this. David Van Covering 
is a writer, minister, motivational speaker, quantum physicist, and inventor. Yet, the next quote I have on your screen from the publisher's disclaimer in the opening of the book, none of the people who've written chapters or given interviews could be considered an expert in quantum physics or any other subject covered in the book. Which is it? Is he a quantum physicist or is he not an expert in quantum physics? They're gaslighting people, right? It's like they... I don't, I wrote the, the publisher actually wrote them and I was like, Hey, you say he's not, a, nobody's a quantum physicist. Then you say he's a quantum physicist. Can you clear things up for me? Do you have any information on his, his background? This was like two, three years ago. They never got back to me, never responded. I emailed the, the, the physics of heaven official website. They just ignored me. Um, or, or for some reason they didn't get back to me, whatever the reason is his education, David Van Covering. Now, normally, you know, as I do research, I look people up and I, I, I'll type in their name and the word, the letters CV, right? You want to find it for people who have that kind of education. Usually they'll have their CV available somewhere. You'll find papers they've written. If you look up Google scholar and type their name, you'll, you'll find something, right? There's nothing on David Van Covering. Um, I can't find a single thing. I checked everything I could find that was written about him online, which there was a good amount on him, but he, as far as I can tell, he never worked as a physicist of any kind. He's never written a single paper on the topic. He's never got a degree of any kind of any kind of degree. His experience, which is, look, that's fine. You can be brilliant and study on your own and become smart on things without a degree, but you can't call yourself a quantum physicist if you haven't got a degree in quantum physics. You catch the difference? You have to say, I'm a hobbyist. You can't, it's deceptive. Um, so what's his experience? <laughs> David Van Covering is well known for being a salesman for the Mog synthesizer that grew in the late 60s and 70s into popularity and helped shift the music industry towards synthesizers. Moog, I think it's pronounced Moog. Um, anyway, it's M-O-O-G, I think it's pronounced Moog. Here's a clip of him though. He So first, he's well known for being a salesman, but he presents himself as an inventor sometimes. But I found a clip where he admits openly that he doesn't actually invent things. So yeah, he called himself an inventor in Physics of Heaven. Here's a clip where he says he's not. Now, I mean, it's not too many guys. I don't, I don't know if you can get this because I know we, we don't have our mini cam today, so we're using studio cameras here. But the Vancouvering Petite Grand, I mean, very few people that I know can have their name on the piano that they invented. I mean, this is amazing. I, I have to say, make a statement here of correction. <clears throat> I get the credit for inventing it. Yes, I'm the visionary. I'm the founder of the company, the chief executive officer, chairman of the board. But I have a very talented team. And the engineers that. that work with me, I must give them the credit for the invention. Hmm. They're software, hardware engineers. Yeah. And when I came to them and Dr. Moog and other musical people around me, Rick Powell, the gentleman that you know here from the Tampa Bay, our, our open music is that's right. invention. And he, he created the styles that yeah. you're listening to that this instrument plays from computer. Those young engineers, they're very bright. They are the musical inventors of the 21st century. I get the credit for it because I had the vision and put the organization together. <coughs> they are the bright mind. So he admits he did not invent this stuff. Even his own product, he didn't invent. But he calls himself a quantum physicist and inventor. He's not. He's a salesman. He's a salesman. This is what he's done. Um, here's a example of what this guy does in person, how he takes his quantum mysticism stuff and his belief in lasers and light and sound, and he puts it into practice. I'm going to show you him prophesying with a laser. I kid you not. I kid you not. Here's video footage of what it looks like when you go off the rails with the stuff that Bethel has endorsed and supported and is training other people to do.
I turn a microphone on, turn an amplifier on, and I turn the laser on. My voice is coming out of that LED on the front of this laser. Testing, one, two. Testing. That little light is carrying my voice. As a matter of fact, it's going into your matter. It really matters, folks. It really, really does. My voice, through this little microphone, is modulating this laser. See it over there on the wall? See that right there? Now, that doesn't look like very much, but that's carrying my voice. That voice, see it up there on the ceiling? Anybody see it? Say, I see it. There it is going up that beam. See it? <clears throat> okay, so what, what he's doing here is he's just laying out the principles of sound travels with light through lasers and I'm and and I'm so I'm projecting the power of my voice now this is where he adds the spiritual part to his so we have science fake science and then fake uh spirituality here's where he has the spiritual part and he prophesies to Scott McCloud and uses a laser to magnify the power of prophecy and literally says I'm doing this by the authority of this laser Scott McCloud say it with me Scott McCloud we speak your intent into your reality within hours and days, not months and years, hours and days, you will cause change in the music industry. You will say and you will see and your vision will be captured by the media and change the musicians, the music industry, even the cash flow. So with the authority of this laser, and the authority of God's word, we call change in the heavens above Nashville. We call change in the city of Nashville. Satan! Say it with me. Say, Ten, you're dismissed in Jesus' name. That'll cause change. Did it cause any change? I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. I looked up Scott McCloud. I didn't see anything about it. I, I'm not saying. I just don't know. There was nothing on there. <sighs> this is um, prophecy by the will of man, visions by the will of man. Revelations and trips to heaven by the will of man using quantum mysticism and woo and fake science to support it and it's being seen as the the, the key to the to the new uh, open door of, of entering into like Pentecost 2.0 the this is actually something I've heard other like Bill like uh, Brian Simmons talks about Pentecost 2.0 and God's releasing the Pentecost 2.0 and we'll be able to teleport places and have superpowers and stuff like that this is yeah I've, there's footage of him saying that kind of stuff too um, I haven't showed it with you guys. Maybe one day I will, if I get around to it. Um, this man is a fraud. David Van Covering is a fraud. He's he's a fraud. This book is fraudulent as a result. Chapter 14. We're almost done here. Getting close. Chapter 14 is stories of strange spiritual experiences. Let's look at these. These are meant to like inspire you to have your own imaginary experiences. This one's from Benny Johnson, Bill Johnson's wife, who's also in some places called a pastor at Bethel. <clears throat> Um, one night after the meeting ended, we were headed to the back of the church and there 
People were laid out all over the floor, laughing and having all kinds of physical manifestations. I was holding onto Bill's arm, and I noticed what looked like a very inebriated man staggering around touching people. I had heard of this condition before and knew that this man was drunk in the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that's a real thing. And they absolutely butcher Acts chapter 2 to suggest it is. Um, what happened next changed my life forever, and I will always be grateful to the man for his drunkenness. <laughs> there's, there's a quotable line from Benny Johnson. I will always be grateful to the man for his drunkenness. He and I made eye contact, and he headed straight toward me. When he reached me, he touched me with his finger on my forearm. That was all, and that was enough. A holy current went right into me, not just on the outside of me, but on the inside as well. When that current hit me, I began to shake so violently that my husband had to let go of my arm. I fell to the ground, and for the next half hour, looked like I was plugged into an electrical socket. So they want you to be open to these practices too. This is not new. The shaking and the drunk and the spirit stuff is not new at all. The reason why the storytelling is happening in the last chapters, 14, 15, and, and, and on, is because they're trying to encourage you to start imagining these things and start trying to initiate yourself experiencing this stuff too as part of their revival plan in the book. Um, there's also an important show I want to touch on, a distortion, a distortion of the biblical view of faith. Um, the, their version of faith is different, I think, than Scripture's version of faith, by some extent at least. Not not that there's no overlap, because they would affirm that it belief is part of faith. But it says here um, on page 127, God truth. By faith we can speak things into existence. It's a God truth. Christians believe that through faith, which could be considered a form of intent, no, it can't, we can affect changes in the material world, and as Romans 4.17 says, Call the things that are not as if they were, as if they are. We also know that the words and the intent behind them have such incredible power that the Bible tells us life and death are in the power of the tongue. I already talked about the life and death thing has nothing to do with power in your words, like in the quantum mysticism sense. Um, but here's a few things that are wrong. One claim is that faith is a form of intent. Uh, lexically, faith is not intent. If you look up the meaning of the word faith or pistis in the Greek, pistuo, like I have faith, it's belief or trust. It's not intent. Intent implies you're trying to cause things to happen by force of your will, whereas faith is you're just trusting God and he's the one doing things. Um, it, so that implies saying that faith is intent implies that faith is a power. It's not. Right, because faith is contrasted to works because faith is is no power at all. You're just trusting. You're just trusting. There's no power of me. I'm, it's not the power of my faith. It's just, I have faith. You're the one doing it, God. So when my part is faith, that means I'm not doing anything. It's not even intent, really. Faith is powerless without God directly acting. Whereas in quantum mysticism, they're believing their faith that they're going to get this and they're going to experience that is causing things to happen with or without God. And they're going to borrow this into Christianity. Uh, this is deeply concerning. So Romans 4, uh, Romans 4 is not saying that you can, according to this quote here, call things as, that are not as, as if they are. Oh, man. They always abuse this verse. And I've never heard a new age, new age or excuse me, a word of faith person respond to this stuff. But this is God doing this. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who, that's God, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. This is not speaking about the power even, although God has the power to simply declare things into existence, um, but it's also speaking here specifically about prophecy. When he says, you're going to be the father of many nations, 
Like you're, you're dried up and your wife is dried. Like you can't have kids, but you will, because I'm going to call things into, I declare what will happen and then it will happen. God's God is not telling you, you have this power. It's God who has the power. So it's transferring from, from God to me. Um, weird stuff. Another issue is that faith changes the material world, faith itself. And that's wrong. And you guys can look at my notes if you want more stuff on that. Um, it's just the video is getting so long. Um, in Romans 4.17, I'll just summarize. God prophesies what he's going to do. Abraham just believes him. God's the one that does it. Abraham doesn't use speech power to manifest reality. Abraham just be- doesn't believe anything into existence. God is the one who does it. Abraham believes. That's the situation between with miracles. I just trust and he does things. The last chapter of the book, we're almost done. I'll give you my, my, my outro here in a second. In this chapter, here's a quote from page 163. Benny Johnson shares that God is issuing a clarion, a shrill and clear sound, calling us to venture into new realms, including realms of vibrations of heaven. You know, one critic on Twitter, I think, was like, Mike, why are you using this book? It's not even related to Bethel. They don't teach this stuff. It was just written by one person who happened to attend Bethel. And it's like, that is so far from the truth. It was like Bill's secretary, who he endorses fully, who he helped train in these things. And... This is why Bethel uh, has, again, experimented with tarot cards. Um, there's 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 just a number of weird practices, psychic stuff, um, new age things, faith as a power, um, lasers, things like this, that are all fit under the umbrella of their general beliefs about how spiritual things should be done. Recently, Bethel had Kenneth Copeland come and speak at their church. Kenneth Copeland's a total heretic. Like, he, I'll use the term heretic because he actually says things that are fundamentally um, counter to the truth of Christianity. Like, you can't be a Christian and say that. You can't just be a Christian in error and say that. You can't even be a Christian and say that. Like, but Kenneth Copeland's been welcomed and spoken very highly of by Bill Johnson. Whatever's going on here, I would call them to repent that would be my encouragement was repent and we will embrace you and celebrate your repentance. But we don't want you having a teaching place in the body of Christ. Not, not with your track record of all the stuff that you've done. I would, I would say if you're part of Bethel, there's probably so many wrong things in your head now from the teaching you received that it would take years for you to unravel and unwrap those things. I'm not saying you need to be cessationist and, and deny the gifts of the spirit. I'm saying that you guys have been trained for as long as Bill has been there. You have been trained to use your imagination instead of the Holy Spirit, to initiate through your own will fake spiritual things instead of responding to the initiation of God. And this is this is not just something that happens, it's actually the training. It's considered the norm. It's considered r- r- laudable and, and something praiseworthy. Here's the conclusion. <clears throat> the book Physics of Heaven and um, the practices at Bethel, they distort both science and scripture to get Christians to embrace new age religious teachings and practices and unbiblical, unscientific things. I would leave a church over this. Absolutely, I would leave a church, even though I'm, I would be very slow to leave a church. This is something I would leave a church over. Bethel's involvement is not incidental. It's not just they happen to have a weird book on their bookshelf. It's it's with their support. It's their teaching. It's with their endorsements, many endorsements from different leaders. It's not incidental. It's instrumental that they're involved in this sort of thing. In my previous video on Bill Johnson, for those who saw that and respected that work, I was concerned that they encouraged spiritual fakery to achieve the appearance of revival and the work of God's spirit. This is an additional scary step because it adds into, well, that came just from you. It adds into it these other elements that actually are beliefs contrary to Christianity 
and opening the door to deception while promising people they can't be deceived. That's all. Um, let's pray. Father, we lift up anybody who's part of Bethel and being influenced by it. There's definitely good stuff that's there. There's, there's a baby in the bathwater, I think. But how much of it is baby and how much is bathwater? And that's a scary thing to think about at this point. Um, it seems as though they've grown, as they've grown bigger and their influence has grown, that they've grown more and more wacky. We pray for their repentance. We pray for them to soberly open up. We pray that the, the leaders would repent and that the people would actually be genuinely led by your spirit. Because your spirit would not be leading them to do these things. That they're le being led by their own imagination or by, by other things. We, we pray that they would be led by your spirit and truth. And we ask that you would have compassion and mercy on them and open their eyes to see the dangers that they've been embracing in the name of revival. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.